Let's, um, let's thank the worship team for leading us this morning. You know, I loved um, what we had the opportunity to participate in with uh, the Life Action Summit Conference, but it's great to be back and have our team leading us. And, uh, you know, welcome to Christ Church this morning. My name is Brian Beemans. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Christ Church. And, uh, you know, speaking of Life Action, uh, it was a phenomenal season, a few weeks of ministry, wasn't it, church? And, uh, and just thankful for that. And the, uh, the Life Action team is gone now, but, but here's, the, here's the sweet thing, is that anytime you get around God's people and the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer is, and the ministry of, of worship is playing out, it leaves a mark on you, doesn't it? It leaves a mark on you and on your heart and on your mind. And uh, uh, I want you to walk in faith according to what God has been speaking into your life whether gathered here at the church or individually in your time with the Lord, I'm praying consistently for your perseverance and your endurance. <clears throat> what God does in your life oftentimes is going to be attacked by the enemy. Sometimes there's resistance and it's fierce and discouragement can come and there can be intense battles. But remember that Jesus has already claimed victory over, over sin and death. Amen? And so remain close to Christ and you know, one of the things I think about often is just what God's doing in our church. And uh, I'm, I'm deeply thankful for, for what he's doing in and through our church. And I'm, I'm more convinced and excited for the simplicity and the beauty and the power of our mission. That, that we want to be a mission-driven church and we want our focus to be on loving God, loving others, and making disciples. At some level, we just got to keep it simple. And uh, I'm excited for the days ahead and for this next series. Um, here it is, the parting words, the last sermon of Jesus. So if you thought like, oh, we went through Sermon on the Mount, surely we're going to be tired of hearing from Jesus. We're never tired of hearing from Jesus. Okay, so we jumped now to uh, John 13 through 17, and we're going to be looking at the parting words. And uh, man, I love this idea of parting words. You see these kind of, if you've ever had the opportunity in a season of transition when you've maybe had some influence over people and now you're leaving to move on to something else and you communicate some parting words. Or some people have the opportunity because of the circumstances to communicate parting words even before they die. I found some great examples of some parting words, so get ready for this. First one, uh, March 30th, 1960 in Utah, uh, th this guy, James Rogers, not a nice guy, condemned murderer, he was preparing to be shot to death by firing squad, because apparently they still did that in 1960. When asked, as is customary, if he had a last request, he replied and he said, yes, I'd like a bulletproof vest. <laughs> High on wisdom for that move, I don't think they granted that to him. Or, or you might like this from Dr. Seuss in his sort of last words. He said, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Oh, classic Dr. Seuss, heartwarming. But these last two quotes that I want to give you, they highlight sort of the sense of this last sermon of Jesus. Read these with me. George Eliot, only in the agony of parting do we look into the depths of love. Only in the agony of parting do we look into the depths of love. Or Arthur Schopenhauer, a really easy last name to pronounce. Every parting gives a foretaste of 
death, every reunion, a hint of the resurrection. Death and resurrection, the agony of parting and the depths of love, this is where Jesus leads us in this last sermon and where he wants to lead you. And so, as we prepare to receive this first message of many in this series, um, let's just pray and ask God to work. God, we just, we come before you and we thank you so much for the opportunity to just sit under your word and uh, God, I pray that this word would speak to us as if we were gathered with Jesus in his last moments. Knowing what we know, God, that he's about to be betrayed and go to the cross and for our sins, I pray that there would be a way that our ear would turn towards this with a level of urgency, like we want to hear you, Jesus, what would you say to us before you died? And I pray, God, that this word would minister to us, it would challenge us, it would call us to live in light of your glory and your goodness, that it would create in us a tenderness in our hearts towards the things that you want for our lives. And so I just thank you for this this morning and ask that you would lead us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Today's passage really serves as sort of an introduction to the entire sermon. It's a call to glorify God. It's a, a call to, to, to love God and to love others. It gives you a picture of how Jesus is going to care for his people after his death. And so all of it's in this passage. Read with me. John chapter 13, starting in verse 31. Now as you turn there, let me remind you that we are in the gospel of John. One of four gospels in the New Testament that give a testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus important. And John is the gospel that when I talk to somebody new to their faith or trying to get into reading the Bible, I'm like, go to the gospel of John. You're going to get such a vivid picture of Jesus. And the passage we're about to go into, starting in verse 31, right before it, look at verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. That's Judas, and it was night. So, so before this, Jesus calls the disciples together. He knows his last hour is upon him. Before the feast of Passover, he calls the disciples to this upper room, and they're all connecting, and Jesus knows he's got an opportunity to communicate some final words, some parting words. But the first thing he does is he highlights his love in washing the disciples' feet. Then he highlights that Judas is going to betray him. Judas leaves to eventually go betray him. And now Jesus is like, I've got my people. I've got my people. And I want to communicate to them something critically important before I die. Here we go, verse 31. When he had gone out, Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, wherever I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him prophetically, will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's the simple but critical move from this passage. Live to glorify God. This idea, living to glorify God, this is your highest calling. We, we love to celebrate motherhood on Mother's Day, right and good, but that is not your highest calling, mothers, or fathers, or children. Your highest calling is the opposite of what the culture teaches all the time. The highest calling is to glorify God. Your highest purpose is not to glorify yourself. Your highest purpose, the reason why you were created, was to glorify God. To live in relationship with God in such a way that you actually reflect the glory of God to the world. That's when you're living in exactly the right place and you sense it in your soul, in your spirit. There's a peace in that reality. There's three aspects of living to glorify God that's reinforced in this passage. Write down the first one. Revel in the splendor of God. Revel in the splendor of God. I mean, you can't miss it. These first two verses, it's like, I think, I think Jesus is a little concerned about, about talking to you about his glory. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Notice patterns when you read Scripture of redundancy or something that's repeated again and again. He's talking about glory. He's talking about glory here. And, and where Christ is going, what's going to happen after this point, what's beginning to be revealed in this upper room sermon is, is that the, he's pointing to, referring to, making light of the fact that in Jesus' death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, that one event with all those three components, that is the center of the redemptive story. And Christ's obedience in his death, resurrection, and ascension, back up to the right hand of God, that it reveals the splendor of God. See, God doesn't want you just to know those things intellectually. He doesn't want you just to be able to recount those things. He doesn't want you just to be fascinated with wanting to know more of those things. He wants you to revel in the splendor of what God has done through Christ. Like, it started with Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's why he's leading up to this with such an illusion and point to glory. It's only Jesus. It's one sacrifice for all. It's D.A. Carson summed it up. He said in, in, his, in his commentary on John, he said, now bringing to a climax a theme developed throughout this gospel, the evangelist John makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, listen, this is a beautiful part about God. He's always wanting to reveal himself. The greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. Why? Why in the shame of the cross? Because in the shame of the cross, uh, when Jesus was dying there, the glory of God was literally emanating from that reality. I mean, think about the words that we talk about that find their definition in Jesus' death on the cross. 
Words like forgiveness and mercy and grace and justice and freedom and love and ransom and reconciliation, all of it emanate from his costly sacrifice on the cross for you. And that's where the weight falls. Those last two words, all of it for you. You're invited to revel in it, to revel in it. If you don't understand the definition of that word, revel, the word means that you enjoy yourself in a lively and loud way. Man, the church, it's just sometimes I, I look at our, the faces, I look sometimes at my own heart in the midst of worship and I'm just like, gosh, I don't have that word revel. Some of you know this, if you've been around our church in the past few weeks. Um, this song, I Thank God, has a bit of a life of its own in our student ministry these days. And uh, if, you, if, they even, if the students even hear the tune of that word, like people just start dancing. It's kind of crazy. It, 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 it's, it's beautiful though, because what is being reflected there in so many of the students is that revel is what should happen when you worship, both corporately and privately. Like, the, the students, when they hear that song, they're excited to revel in the splendor of what God has done. It's not surprising the lyrics point to the splendor of God's redemption. I mean, let's just recall some of it. It's all there. Christ's death and resurrection. Get up, get up, get up, get up out of that grave. That's not even possible apart from the resurrection. That's the most absurd lyrics ever outside of knowing the gospel. Or he picked me up, he turned me around, placed my feet on solid ground. That is a supernatural work of God that he does when we put our faith in him. Amen? Hell lost another one. I am free. How about that? How about opposed to uh, us having this sense of like, I'm so defeated by the enemy and, and the world. And says it's like, hell lost another one. I'm free. And to revel in the splendor of God. To enter in by faith and believe that what we're, what we're on the course literally of our life has been changed and we're ascending in a heavenly direction, walking in redemption. The final refrain, I thank the master, I thank the savior, I thank God. Yes, yes, yes. And the question that that point is that I even was thinking as I watched that play out in the midst of some of our services recently and not just with the students but with others in the midst of worship is are you watching others revel in the splendor of God or are you reveling in the splendor of God yourself? Because, because reveling is not a spectator sport. It's like, oh, I got this really cool video of people reveling in the splendor of God. And God's like, why don't I have a video of you reveling in the splendor of God? Because my majesty, my love, my mercy, my grace is towards you too. I don't watch it in other people's lives when I've offered it to you. It's breaking my heart as a father to not see you reveling in the splendor of God. Now you may not have the personality that jumps around and dances. That's fine. But when the gospel intersects the human heart and life, everyone revels. And they max it out to whatever degree their personality allows and oftentimes extending a bit beyond. If you want to live to glorify God, start by reveling in the glory that he's revealed to us. And I'm, I'm burdened by 
a people that seem to believe at times that when we get older, we somehow mature out of awe or we mature beyond mystery. But we can't lose the amazement of gazing into the unknown power and potential of the supernatural. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. Revel in it. Let, let, let the truths of God captivate your heart and mind and soul and let them deepen your emotions, not lessen over time. Let the songs of worship that you hear in our church or that can stir your hearts up in the pages of Scripture capture your heart and mind and emotions. I want to encourage you to practice regularly reveling in the splendor of God through worship. A really easy, probably most accessible way to anybody, if you've got a copy of God's Word, just get your Bible open to the Psalms. That's a revelation of, of, of people worshiping God and reveling in the splendor of God. I mean, you could turn there with me. Turn to Psalm 146 if you want to, or just listen along. Psalm 146. I don't think this is meant to be read. I think this is meant to be sung. I think this is meant to capture our hearts and our emotions. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plants perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The bigness of God, then the, little of, the littleness of God, the specificity of his love, look at it. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. I just revel in the splendor of God. One of the practices that honestly has been most consistent in my life from the very, very beginning of my faith in Christ is I would just, uh, so thankful that I kind of got saved into a culture of really good gospel-centered worship music. And uh, so often in times I didn't even understand the truths fully and deeply, I would just uh, turn on worship music and just, just lay down and just pray. And I would pray in light of the words that I was hearing in light of the truths being proclaimed. You could do that with the Psalms, you could do that with good worship music today, and, and, and just begin to allow your heart and mind to revel in the splendor of God. Reveling in the splendor of God is not just for young people. It's for every generation and every personality. It is a God-glorifying response of your soul and your heart and your mind to the work of Christ in His death, resurrection, and ascension. Revel in the splendor of God. Second aspect of living to glorify God, reveal the love of God. Reveal the love of God. These next two verses are, are, are pretty well known by the reader of Scripture. You've probably heard a message in these. I mean, I mean, look what it says in verse 34. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, this is one of the reasons why a passage like this, you see it all over in the Scriptures. It's the reason why this verse and so many others, why our mission statement says, love God, love others, make disciples. Because this has to be central. But what Jesus does here that you can't miss is he makes a connection between loving God and loving others in verse 34. Notice what he says there. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But he doesn't stop. In his next breath he says, just as I have, what church? Loved you. So the first consideration or unpacking of how to love one another, he goes vertically and he goes, just notice, notice, just as I have loved you, you also, after considering this vertical love of God to you, after that, now you also are to love one another. Here's what I want you to to recognize. You learn to love one another by experiencing the love of God. Remember, this passage comes right after Jesus says that where he is going, no one else can go. That is a direct reference to the cross. Biblical love is displayed in Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross. A few months ago, I gave you this helpful quote from Paul Tripp that defines biblical love, and I love it. I want to put it in front of us again because we cannot see this enough until it is written on our hearts and our minds. Look what he writes. He says, love, biblical love, is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. It's not looking for something back or that the person being loved is even deserving. See, the essential character of biblical love is self-sacrifice, not self-affirmation. How often do we want to kind of make it about us subtly, aggressively, passive-aggressively, all the categories? And this reality of love is completely countercultural. It, it's, it's, like, it's like I'm thinking now above my interests. Biblical love is always above something. Biblical love is willing to endure pain. It's long-suffering. Colin Cruz highlights this. I love this quote. This love is not sentimental. Sentimental is like the worldly version of love. It's kind of like this. Oh, just kind of like the, the gagging sound is what you should make when you think about a sentimental worldly love. But real self-sacrificing love by which they place other believers' needs above their own. Lovelessness among believers nullifies their witness to the world and reveals them as hypocrites. Ugh. The only way you can love others like this is by experiencing the love of God first by faith. It's the love of God, watch this, it's the love of God received, it's the love of God shared, and then it's the love of God revealed, okay? 
Don't, don't mix that order up or you'll cause yourself a whole, whole host of either uh, levels of guilt and shame or confusion about how to live in the reality of biblical love. It's the love of God received, the love of God shared, then the love of God revealed. Everywhere, God wants his love to be revealed. When I interact with and it happens all the time in the context of the church and ministry. When someone, even in my own life at times, when, when I'm wrestling with love, but I'm talking about a category beyond that. I'm talking about a, a follower of Christ that is consistently failing to love in every area where sacrifice is required. And even to the point where they're responding with hate towards a, a group of people or towards someone specific. And they really don't want to change. When that is the case, there is a contradiction that needs urgent counsel. Because the lack of love is revealing a flaw that compassion should move towards just like any other need that we might hear about in a person's life. There's a flaw somewhere. It, it could be in the person's understanding of the gospel. There's something hindering the love of God, their understanding of it, their ability to receive it, or their experience of Christ's love, or the reality is, is they don't really have an authentic faith at all. Now, now, the counsel in these moments should not be to heap on guilt or shame. The failure to love, the refusal to love, or the enduring struggle to love is actually a grace. It's a grace because if we can identify it rightly and, and give counsel to it in the right way, it reveals your need to know God's sacrificial love more deeply. There's something flawed that God wants to fill. Because loving others sacrificially is how we glorify God. How we live into our purpose. See, receiving the love of God and, and loving others should come out of the overflow of God's love for you. That's an essential mark of the church. It's what Jesus says in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The starting point for sharing Christ with the world is, is, is our love for one another. God's love is, is revealed by ridiculous acts of spirit-empowered sacrificial love. Now, now, be careful here. Be careful that our acts of love are actually spirit-empowered sacrificial acts of love. Okay, I, I know that sometimes there can be a temptation to love and be like, well, you're being kind of, you're being kind of like mm, less than nice to me, so I'm going to love you super sacrificially just to make you feel guilt and shame. I know it. Guys, I, I've been there too. I know where our heart can go in those moments, right? Sometimes it's like, hey, everybody, just watch me. I'm about to show you how to be Superman for Jesus, and I'm going to do something just audacious, but really I'm wanting attention. It's coming out of a lack. It's not an overflow. If we want to understand the character of biblical love, we've got to start by reveling in the splendor of God and, and being so overwhelmed by God's love and the fact that I don't deserve it. 
I don't deserve any of it. And, and to stay underneath his love and to realize that in his tenderness and his beauty and his power that he wants to fill up every part of me that's lacking and every part of the sensitivity of my self-concept and the way I, I, I even think about myself within the context of the world, it suddenly doesn't matter anymore because I'm, I'm, at, the, I'm at the center of God's love and I, I don't really, like I'm not concerned about how a person's gonna receive me or not. I'm not concerned about reciprocation. I'm not concerned about how, what I should or should not do in the midst of that I start to receive God's love it starts to fill my heart up in such beautiful ways that I start to look around and and I see places where there could be a potential for my love to have an impact and now I'm just looking for places to overflow with God's love there's a purity to it and when you experience that it is one of the most glorious realities in the gospel I'm not trying to, I don't, need to, I don't even need to, I don't need to love another person to even prove myself to God. Because Jesus already died on the cross to prove that he loved me and it's been established and it was finished. And to sit there creates not just an ability for ridiculous moves of love, but also, watch this, also the endurance to continue in it. The world's got nothing on that. Nothing, nothing, nothing. This is uh, how um, God's love is revealed to the world. That it's so profound and so over the top that there's no way that it could be manufactured by the brokenness of the human heart. This is why discipleship, church, is always going to be most clearly seen and challenged and grown in you in smaller groups. Now, I love the, what we can accomplish together in the sense of uh, serving our community or even serving in the context of the church. I love what happens when we gather together in regards to um, our celebration of God in worship and even uh, teaching and hearing the word together in a large group. But I promise you that we really learn to love one another in smaller groups. In your home, in your friendships, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your community group at Christ Church, in your serving together on teams. This is where we get to really know one another. This is where we get to see each other on our best and our worst days. The true test of discipleship does not come on Sunday morning. It just doesn't. I'm so limited in what I can know about the truth and reality of discipleship uh, bearing fruit in your life from Sunday morning. We can all put on our best clothes and put on our best smile and attitude for an hour and a half. The true test of God's love being received, shared, and revealed comes in the conflict between husband and wife. The true test comes when a parent uh, is um, addressing the rebellion of a child. The true test comes when the, when the co-worker is slandering your name behind your back. The true test comes when someone cuts you off as you're driving down the road. I know, that one stings. The true test comes when where you go when no one's looking. The true test comes when you really learn to love a person in your community group who's nothing like you. They have, you have nothing in common with them except the gospel. The true test of discipleship comes not 
not when someone's standing in front of you teaching you about giving and giving you an opportunity to give, but when you see somebody who has need and there's no call to give. There's no opportunity, but you still move towards it. When it requires a sacrifice, that is the true authenticator of biblical love. How? How do we increase our capacity to love like this? Not by trying harder. Not by trying harder. We do it by what I said earlier, reveling in the splendor of God. When it begins to connect with your mind and your heart and now your emotions, there is nothing that will hold it back. Then on top of that, empowered by God's spirit, don't act in your own strength. Start by receiving the sacrificial love of God for you. Take hold of it by faith. Ask for the power power of the spirit to help you receive the love of God more deeply. And so into that right now, I just want to stop for a moment and I want to ask you this question. Where are you not demonstrating the love of God? But I don't just want to ask you this, that question. I want you to, I want to sit for a moment and I want you to consider and ask this question of God. Lord, where are you calling me to love sacrificially? Let's think about that for a moment. Into this, I'm asking for the Spirit of God to do a work. I can't know that in your heart. You can't know that in my heart. Where? Even right now, even right now, you can ask the Lord that question. Maybe some of you, before that question even came, the spirit of this question was already revealing it to you. Think about it. Lord, where are you calling me to love sacrificially? Maybe you're writing down a a group of people or maybe you're writing down a specific name. In the midst of that, I don't want you to immediately come up with a plan of what you want to do in response to what the God's Spirit is leading you towards. I want you to start by asking God, God, please help me be empowered to love by first receiving your love. Start there. Receive, share, reveal. Lord, where are you calling me to love sacrificially? It should be a question that the overflow, the evidence that God's love is overflowing in your life is that you're thinking about that all the time. Reveal the love of God, live to glorify God. Finally this, rehearse the resources of God. In this last section um, we, of this passage, we see Peter. Um, you know, I love Peter. I just got to be honest. I love Peter's sort of like, he just, he's just zealous, just without, without aim sometimes. You're like, where's Peter going to like fire off and go running? Peter's the type of kid you would have loved to have parented. Joking. Peter would have been the kid you're like, man, before you know it, he's sticking his finger in an outlet. He's jumping into the pool. He's running out into traffic. I mean, Peter's been like, put the kid on a leash safest place for Peter. And Peter just, he just, Peter didn't even hear verses 34 and 35. Okay? Peter heard Jesus say, where I am, you cannot come. And he's just like, 
just waiting to ask the question. Jesus talks about the love of God and the love for one another. And then immediately, 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? He is so concerned. Jesus answers him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. What he's saying, and you just can't say this to Peter. I'm just, I gotta be honest. Like, he's telling him to wait. Peter doesn't hear wait. And so he's like, Jesus is basically telling him, you can't go with me because I'm going to the cross. Peter doesn't realize that yet. And he's like, but you'll follow me afterwards. After I go to the cross. After I resurrect from the dead. After I ascend to the Father. Then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit down. And I'll tell you what, Peter, you're going to be way different in Acts than you were in this gospel. Because you're going to receive the resources of God. But Peter's just impatient. And so Peter says to him in verse 37, Lord, why, 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 why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Man. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? It's a question he's going to ask him later in a beautiful reinstatement. But first, Peter, you know what's going to come because you're rushing ahead without the resources of God? because you're going to rush forward with zeal but not resources. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Do you know what Peter's response was right after he denies him three times and the rooster crows? Anybody remember? Do you remember what Peter's response was? What emotion came over him? He wept. He cried. He was like, I had zeal but no resources. There's a lesson here for us. There's a lesson here. We've got to be a people that rehearse the resources of God. If you want to fulfill your desire to, to join God in building and expanding His kingdom, you can't come with the wrong resources. You have to learn to, to rehearse the resources of God. Peter's like the child who, who wants to uh, uh, worship. This is... Um, this is Brooks and Rivers guitar, the Shears children. So clearly they're um, you know, trying to learn to follow in their parents' footsteps. And, um, and if you come with a guitar like this and you're like, I'm ready to lead worship, and you have no clue what you're doing, like me with an instrument in my hands, it's going to sound pretty terrible. And in addition, this guitar isn't even the right one. It doesn't even have the capabilities to have that little plug go in it so that then you can project out the sound in a beautiful way. So you have to have the right resources. And then you have to rehearse. You have to rehearse them over your life. You have to rehearse the, the, the resources of God to reinforce them into your heart and your mind. And suddenly what happens is that, that you start to learn first to tune the faith that God has put in your heart and mind. And you start to learn how to take hold of the resources so that you can produce different notes of the gospel over your life. And at the beginning, it just doesn't sound good. But you still love it. Because you've seen in, in the beauty of what you're Savior and Lord did, you hear the beauty of the sounds of the gospel and you're like, I want to learn them. 
I want to learn them beautifully. I want to know how to put them together so they can, they can cause my life and my heart to feel the same level of emotions and, and, and my mind and my heart to be captivated by the beauty of the gospel. And so you just rehearse over and over again to learn how to play the different notes of the gospel. And then God brings you into a, a body of Christ with a bunch of other people holding on to the different instruments that God's given them. And suddenly the individual parts become this symphony that starts to play the gospel out. As you rehearse the resources of God, I've got three of them that I want you to highlight that are notes. There's so many different notes of the gospel, but these three. First one, grace in his death. These are, these are beautiful notes that, 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 that help you understand that by taking hold of his death, you find grace. And these, these notes, they cover over those places where you're burdened and weighed down by sin and they come and they settle on your heart and life and change the way that you think and the way that you live. The power in his resurrection, these are, these are power chords. They're strong and powerful notes. They remind you of the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word and the work of the Spirit to literally transform you. And you're like, man, I've got to rehearse those. I want to know them so well. And then hope in His exaltation. To endure in suffering because my future is secure and I take hold of this in the midst of my suffering. And they're like, I don't even know if I've got the energy to play but I've rehearsed hope so many times that I'll just slowly and patiently pluck and allow the, the notes of hope in his exaltation help me to walk through life with purpose and on mission because my life I know is temporary in light of the notes of eternity. We've got to rehearse you know, this, this guitar at the beginning, it says first act musician. That's what you are when you first come to faith in Christ. You're like, I, just, I was given this guitar. I'm not even really sure how to play it. And you learn from other people. And you learn from the one who's played through his redemptive story the notes of the gospel over your life before the foundation of the world. And you start to hear them. And you start to learn. And you start to rehearse. Faith rehearses by taking hold of the resources. And you learn to drink from the overflowing well of the gospel. And that gospel starts to define your identity and shape your future and alter your perspective. And together, the sound of the church rehearsing to the glory and praise of God is a fulfillment of God's heart. I love this, what Paul prayed in Philippians 1. 9 through 11, read this on the screen. And it is my prayer that your love, there it is, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Notice, in the maturity of learning how to play the notes, it gives you knowledge and discernment. Suddenly the beauty of what you can play into your life and into other people's lives is awesome so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, there it is, to the glory and praise of God. And, and listen, Jesus established in the upper room discourse, he established communion to be a place in the rhythm of the church where God's people are rehearsing the resources of God. 
That's what what he did here. All that Jesus accomplished on the cross. He is inviting all people to become part of God's orchestra. To take up the instrument that he's planned for you to play and to to say, come and be a part of your part is going to make this more beautiful. It's going to give it more depth and intricacy. Through faith in Christ, sacrifice on the cross and and through a commitment to follow him, all of the resources, all of his resources are available to you. So I want us to go to communion now and I want us to rehearse the resources of God. Maybe for you this morning, the note that needs to be played more beautifully over your life is grace in his death. Maybe it is power in his resurrection. Maybe it is hope in his exaltation. Maybe it's something that I haven't even mentioned this morning. Maybe something more complex and more beautiful, something that only the Spirit of God could know and to speak over your life. In these coming moments, I want you to thank Him for His work. I want you to confess your sin. I want you to confess the places where you're not, where you're not taking hold of God's resources. I want you to receive His love and, and ask Him for strength to show it to others so that the world can see rehearse the resources of God. The communion servers are coming now and as the elements are passed in just a few moments, I want you to take the two cups stacked on top of one another, one with the bread, one with the juice, symbols of Christ's sacrifice for you. I want you to take the elements and hold on to them. We'll take them together in a few minutes. As you wait, rehearse the resources of God. Let this be a worship moment for you as the band leads us. Let's do it now.